I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. engine light on? Take the guesswork out of your check engine light with O'Reilly Veriscan. It's free and provides a report with solutions based on over 650 million vehicle scans verified by ASE certified master technicians. And if you need help, we can recommend a shop for you. Ask for O'Reilly Veriscan today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts Welcome to the Wired to Hunt Foundations podcast, your guide to the fundamentals of better deer hunting. And now, your host, Tony Peterson. Hey everyone, welcome to the Wired to Hunt Foundations podcast, which is brought to you by First Light. Today's episode isn't really actually about Bambi the movie, but about fawns in general and deer survival specifically. Within about the last six weeks, they started popping up on trail camera images. You might have seen a few of them in your backyard or from the road while you're heading to the lake to do some fishing. They're adorable, but it's also worth understanding them and how they survive. Because the lessons they learn when they are a few weeks old and covered with spots carry them right through adulthood quite often. I know, I know. I said I wasn't going to talk about Bambi the movie, but I'm going to. I have to. It's only fitting to this episode anyway, and we might as well get a lesson in propaganda that can be used against us as hunters, which probably wasn't the intention of the original movie, but it sure wasn't like the fine folks at Disney were interested in representing real deer and real deer hunters. Now, anyway, did you know that Bambi was released 80 years ago? Smack dab in the middle of the Second Great War, The House of the Mouse released a movie based on a novel that was actually written about a roe deer, considering the author was Austrian. Since Bambi was set to be a big hit in the United States, they ditched the roe deer look and they decided on a mule deer. No, really, they did. It was going to be a California mule deer, apparently, but one of the illustrators, and I can only speculate here, but I assume he knew his shit when it came to deer convinced the production team that a white-tailed deer would be more relatable and more recognizable. 
the adorable little anime precursor with his big eyes won the hearts of Americans with his story of survival in the face of the antagonist, a hunter aptly named Man. Just Man. It's almost like, I don't know, almost like that was a representative of how evil people are or something. Anyway, the old Bamster is raised by his mom until Man made good on a shot and took her home for backstraps. So then Bambi's dad decides to come back into the picture and raise him to be the next great prince of the forest. Along the way to inheriting his crown under the tutelage of his father, who has a full rack even when Bambi is just a newborn, hmm, the youngster makes friends with a rabbit and a skunk. I can't prove this because I wasn't in the writer's room, but I don't think Bambi is based on a true story. Anyway, it ends with the bad man bringing his vicious hunting dogs into the woods where not only does he shoot Bambi non-lethally, probably because he was carrying an AR chambered in 223 or something, but his campfire gets a little out of control and burns the forest down too. So essentially, humans are bad and destructive, and animals are pure, adorable, and the rightful owners of the forest. You know, never mind that we are basically just hairless apes and very much a part of nature ourselves. I could go on and on about how hunters are portrayed in film or television. Or hell, I don't know, just popular media these days. But I won't because my blood pressure cannot handle it. In fact, if my wife and I are watching a show and a hunting scene comes on, I know she's going to roll her eyes and point out how I'm definitely going to bitch about every stupid little thing I see. But to be fair, she's a physical therapist who can't stand to see an actor use a cane or a walker incorrectly. And never once has she let that slide without bringing it up. The lesson there for my young unmarried listeners who think they'll be the prince of the old household instead of the forest is that you won't. (laughs) You'll be on the silver metal podium until you start having kids and then you'll just keep getting bumped down Qbert style. Now, how's that for an obscure video game reference? Now, if you can't tell my Ritalin prescription ran out, I'll get back on task now. Fawns. They're cool, right? I mean, who doesn't love seeing them? Who doesn't love glassing a field in the summer and seeing a doe with a couple of youngsters in tow? Or who doesn't love having to slow down on a gravel road that winds its way through the big woods to let mom go, knowing that any second, Junior is going to spring across the road to meet up with mama? They're neat to see. But what does that mean? That probably depends on where you live and where you hunt. If you're in much of the Whitetails range, seeing a bunch of fawns in the summer is probably very routine. You're probably used to it, but you probably also always expect there to be plenty of deer on the landscape. That's a luxury, my friends. One you can't really appreciate until you hunt a place where the population ebbs and flows to the point where the hunting might go from okay to downright terrible. If you hunt the North Country, you know what I mean. One bad winter and the reset on the deer population might be like a 50% reduction one wolf pack moving in, and you might see similar results. Now, they might not all be turned into wolf poop, but they might be gone. And for the hunter who has lost the deer, it's damn near the same thing. Now, if you hunt a region like that, seeing fawns is real nice. I saw that recently in northern Wisconsin, and it made me happy. And this is especially true if you're in an area where you know single fawns are kind of the rule, and seeing twins or triplets is pretty damn rare and cool. If you see that a fair amount of the does have at least one fawn, it's kind of time for some hope. 
I know this sounds like I'm being facetious here, but where I hunt in northern Wisconsin, like I just said, we pay close attention to the fawns. We like that next generation. We also, at least we here as my hunting buddies and I, we don't kill certain does who seem to be pretty good at raising fawns. There are too many predators up there. And those bad recent winters that knock the herd down, they are always coming. It might be every couple years, might be every five, might be every eight. They're coming. Just like there is an asteroid out there somewhere with the address for Earth written on it. And if Jupiter doesn't soak it up first, whatever life is still here could be in real trouble. And that's coming. Side note, and I don't know if this is true or not, but I read about the other day. There is an archaeological dig in North Dakota where they found glass that they believe was thrown from the impact that killed the dinosaurs. And you know where that hit? Mexico. Imagine the power behind that one thing hitting the earth to toss physical pieces of the earth from Mexico to frickin' North Dakota. Anyway, now a bad winter in the North Country isn't quite that severe, but it does suck. Just like it sucks to have a CWD slaughter fest in your county, or maybe a local EHD outbreak, or hell, a neighbor who just breaks all the laws and kills every deer he can, in season or out. In all those situations, and probably a ton more that I'm not thinking of right now, a new generation of deer is most welcome. That generation of fawns is a new beginning. Sure, it'll take them a few years to grow into big bucks and big does that make more babies, but you can't be too impatient with this stuff. It takes time. And you know what's cool about fawns besides what they represent for the future? How they behave. We see videos of newborn fawns playing with dogs and laying in people's yards and gardens and not exactly exhibiting the kind of survival skills that you'd want your deer to have. But that's a short window. In fact, most of that dumb behavior probably only lasts a few weeks at best. Maybe a couple of months for the really slow learners. But what's important is that they're always learning. And what's interesting is that they might not have to learn everything. Some of their behaviors seem to be almost like generational memories, and we don't really know how that works. For human babies, it's a slow development. We take like a year to walk and talk, and then hell, a lot longer to mature. Sometimes, at least 42 years, according to one mean physical therapist I can think of. Yet, when fawns hit the dirt, they are learning. They are usually standing and nursing within the amount of time it would take you to watch a Simpsons rerun. And they can walk within a few hours. Within like three weeks, they can outrun most predators. And in the first few weeks of their lives, they spend like 90% of their time bedded. This is because, you guessed it, they can't outrun predators yet. If you can't run, you better freaking hide. And they hide well. And they learn valuable lessons from it. Now, you know, there are predators out there that are just good at mopping up bambies that are stashed away. I'm talking about bears, of course. There is an animal in the woods that is better at reducing deer numbers in June and July than a black bear. Other critters make up for it later in a fawn's life. But if you want to not recruit too many generations of deer on your place, make it awful friendly for the yogis to live there. Even with that threat out there, like we see in these northern states in the big woods, there are still fawns that make it. They make it simply by hiding where mama tells them to hide. How do they do it? How do they know just like where they should lay? Oh, who knows? Maybe some of them stand up and get eaten, which is undoubtedly true. But most of them, 
and you've probably seen this yourself, or I hope you have, they just lay down across their hooves. The danger will pass them by. I've seen this dozens of times in my life, and it amazes me their resolve. But I guess, you know, they don't have much of a choice. And they also learn when they lay still and they don't get eaten that there is real value in just hiding. I think deer, especially older deer, understand this game so well that we can barely fathom it. I think they probably know tons of spots in their home range where they can hide while using their conditions to their advantage in ways that would just blow our minds if we didn't have the underdeveloped senses of a potato. Those fawns out there now, they're learning that survival skill and they'll use it against you. They're also learning how to communicate with the herd and who will tolerate them getting too close and who will throw a right cross at them when they invade their personal space. If you're confused by that, listen to last week's episode about how animals are assholes. And as far as communication is concerned, I want to tell you a story I've told a few times in various podcasts. So apologize if you heard this one before. But it was one of those moments in the woods that changed my way of thinking. And it comes back to me all the time. I mean, I think about this a lot. I was sitting in a wood edge in northern Minnesota with binoculars and a spotting scope while the early August sun beat down. I had obviously gotten out a little bit too early for my nightly glassing session. But there was a bachelor group of bucks with one really cool old seven pointer and a high and tight 10 pointer that I was super interested in watching, but not spooking. So I had settled in real early and the first hours ticked by. And then suddenly out of the blue, there was a deer standing right in front of me. It was a fawn. It was maybe 10 yards away. And I'll never forget the way the sun hit his ear that I could see right through the veins in it. And it was glowing right through him. It was just a neat look. And he was looking into the field. And that's when I saw his mom standing at the far end in a point of grass and brush. Then from the farthest corner of the field, I caught movement. A different fawn was running toward the doe. And I thought, well, maybe this is just a coincidence. But that's when that fawn that was close to me took off, ran straight across the field of that doe as well. And they had a little greeting, tried to nurse, and they started to feed in the field together as a little family group. Now, the dimensions of that field were roughly 200 by 400 yards, and the distance between the does and fawns was pretty far. The fawn closest to me was probably 250 yards away from his mom, yet he knew right when she stood up, and his sibling did too from the far corner of the field. Now, I thought, you know, how the hell did they know how to get up? Now, we know that dogs learn our schedules by the level of evaporation in our scent, like throughout the day, our scent lessens to a certain point. And then boom, we come home from work. Over time, they recognize that level of evaporation as the time it takes for us to go to work and then come home. But I promise you that doe doesn't pick up her fawns at the same time every day. She also probably doesn't stash them away in the same spot. So how did they know it was time to all simultaneously stand up? You might be thinking, maybe the doe stood up and the fawn saw her. Now, I thought of that too, but that fawn was buried enough on the edge of that field that I never saw it for hours from 10 yards away. It would have had to stand up to see her. And when he stood up, she was already up. So was the other fawn. I've mentioned several times that I don't think deer have a sixth sense. I, and I believe that. I don't think they do. And there's no evidence to prove it exists, but there is something going on with them communication wise that you and I are just probably not privy to. And what's wild about it is that it's happening even when they are newborns. 
even when they are still super vulnerable to any set of sharp teeth that happens to saunter past their hiding spot. I think that's pretty cool. And I also think it's pretty cool what fawns can do and how older deer hold tight to those survival skills. I mean, you know, it's not exactly rocket science that prey animals either run and hide, but they do it so well. And that's pretty cool. And think about that fawn in my area in northern Wisconsin. Bear numbers are high. Coyote numbers are high. Bobcat numbers are high. And wolf numbers are sometimes high depending on how close a pack gets. That's a lot of hungry, cunning predators out there that by most accounts are probably at least an order of magnitude or more smarter than the average deer. After all, to hunt something and catch it, you've got to get lucky or outthink it. And luck doesn't carry you very far in nature. A lot of both happens, though, I think. That that lone fawn in the Northwoods of Wisconsin can somehow manage to avoid getting caught and eaten by all of those predators when it's likely they have an encounter a day, maybe more. And even if I'm overshooting that number, what if it was a couple encounters of predators, close encounters of predators, I should say, every week? Within the first year, I don't know, they'd have dodged death, what, a hundred times? How many hungry grizzly bears would you have to have within, say, 20 yards of you before you were featured on the local news station in Bozeman as a statistic? I doubt it would be 100. I think personally, I wouldn't make it into double digits before Meteor was replacing me with another whitetail rider. Yet those little fawns, those little soft-eyed bambies, they're out there doing it every day. Then they get to the fall and they encounter the deadliest predator of them all. Dogs. Just kidding. It's people. The dreaded man, man, capital M, Bambi man, with his out-of-control campfires, snarling dogs, and propensity for spraying and praying with those guns. They make it through that too. A lot of them do anyway. And when they do, they are still young and by a lot of accounts, dumb. But we've talked about this before. Intelligence isn't really like ubiquitous across animals the way we'd like it to be. Well, hell, it's not really ubiquitous across humans, but that's a different story. Survival is, though, at least for most of us, fortunately. In deer, including little fawns, it certainly is. And while they are cool to see and encounter and know that they are out there growing into bigger deer, it's important to remember the lessons they can teach us. Running works, but so does hiding. And the more we understand how deer hide and where they're likely to do it, the better we are at hunting them. That's going to be the topic for next week, actually. I want to get into bedding and what summer scouting can do for you on that front. That's it for this week, my friends. Thank you so much for the support. I'm Tony Peterson. This has been the Wired to Hunt Foundations podcast, which is brought to you by First Light. If you want more whitetail content, feel free to check out themeateater.com slash wired to see our latest articles or visit the Wired to Hunt YouTube channel to watch our latest how-to videos. Hey, everybody knows Weber Grills. I've been using Weber Grills my whole life, and check it out. They got a pellet grill, the Weber Searwood Pellet Grill. Now, with a pellet grill, you can smoke, roast, and sear on the same grill. You can go from low and slow, okay, on smoke boost mode, or crank this thing all the way to a heat sear at 600 degrees. It's got a full great sear zone so you can put more food on the flame. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood pellet grill. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart 
out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.